All right, Mark chapter 7, verse 31. Mark 7, 31. And Jesus went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva, and looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, be opened. And his ears were opened. And the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And he, that is Jesus, gave them orders not to tell anyone. But the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. So how many of you, last week at some time during the week, went like this? Just a show of hands, how many people sighed last week? Okay. Part of the human condition. If you didn't sigh last week, I kind of wonder if you were breathing. <laughs> you know, whether it's when you're watching the news or you're talking to your kids or you're dealing with your parents, you sigh. I watched the news talking to my kids and dealt with my parents all last week, and I think I sighed every time. <laughs> in the miraculous moment before us, here in the Gospel recounted by Mark, this miracle only recounted by Mark, we have one of the most unique healings in the New Testament. It's also the first of only two times in the entire New Testament when Jesus sighed. Now, my guess is he probably sighed a lot more. But the Bible only tells us two times. It's interesting, last week we talked about two other times Jesus did something. Two times Jesus was amazed. Remember, he was amazed at the centurion's faith. And he was amazed at the lack of faith of his own hometown of Nazareth. Well, this week we see a a, a similar thing. Jesus sighs two times. The second time Jesus sighs is down in the next chapter of Mark, chapter 8, when another delegation of Pharisees show up to debate with him and to get after him and to seek to undermine him and and scrutinize him and see if they can pin something on Jesus. Mark chapter 8, verse 11 says, The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. The Bible says, sighing deeply in his spirit. He said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. They ask for a sign, and what they get is a sigh. Jesus is put out. He's fed up. This is the sigh I think most of us are most familiar with, and it is the sigh of exasperation. In fact, when I think of the word sigh, that's what I hear is exasperation. (sighs) You know, it it tends to go with the head shake. Or even exhaustion at the end of the day. (sighs) Where you sit down for the first time. That's the sigh I think we're most familiar with. That's not the sigh we're going to see this morning. The sigh we're going to look at in a few minutes is for a completely different reason. But we need to work our way up to it. So let's walk the passage out, beginning back in verse 31. Consider this with me. Again, he went out from the region of Tyre. Tyre is Lebanon today. 
So he's gone all the way up into Lebanon. And we saw in our midweek study, not just crossing the border, but the indication is that he went deep into Tyre. Now, as we read it and we studied it this last week, Jesus, back in verse 24, went away to the region of Tyre. He went and entered a house. He wanted no one to know, and yet he could not escape notice. Now, I infer from that that Jesus was tired, so he went to retire in Tyre. Right? Okay, so he goes up to Tyre to retire for a bit. And I might be wrong. If you go back to Joshua 19, verses 24 through about 29, you find out that that exact region belonged to, was given to the tribe of Asher. It was Israel territory when they first came into the land. Is it possible that Jesus, in fact, went to Tyre, not to retire, but to retake Tyre? That perhaps Messiah needed to go up into Tyre and and Zidon so that His presence would be known there, not so much in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm, so that those demonic principalities over that area would recognize Messiah has come and is reclaiming all that belonged to Israel, all that came from the Lord God. Interesting to think about. Perhaps Jesus wasn't so tired after all. Perhaps He was going up there to stake His claim on the land that God had already previously given to Israel. Again, something to think about. But after that, He comes back down out of Tyre, through Sidon, and comes down to the region of Decapolis. We've been there before. Decapolis. Decapolis means ten cities. And there were indeed ten cities of what was called the Decapolis. And the Decapolis was Rome away from Rome. You know, it was the place where if you were Roman but you had to live in Israel, that would be the place to go. One of these ten cities. They were identical cities. Planned communities. Each one of these cities were so identical in the way they were laid out that archaeologists in Israel today know exactly where something will be. If they dig up a region of one of these ten cities, say they dig up the uh, Colosseum, They know, based on that, exactly where everything else is going to be underground. Because all the rest of these ten cities are laid out exactly the same way. They all have massive marble columns that run along a main tiled Roman colonnade in the city center. They have a huge public bathhouse that would be typically to the left of that column as you come into the city. A red light district, that is small little huts, houses for temple prostitutes or for prostitution taking place there as well. Then a shopping mall, a large public restroom. Some of you have taken pictures of yourselves in the large public restroom there in one of these planned communities. There were pagan temples, finally a Colosseum and a Hippodrome. The Colosseum mostly for concerts and things like that. Hippodrome for chariot races and uh, other things going on there as well. The Decapolis then was the most Roman region in Judea and Samaria. It was Gentile, it was urban, and it was pagan in every sense. Nine of the ten cities of Decapolis were on the eastern side of the Jordan River, or in what is Jordan today. One city was on the western side. Israel travelers, what is the name of that city? Bethshan. Bethshan is the city. That's the same city, by the way, where the beheaded uh, body of, of Saul, King Saul, was hung up on the wall. Bethshan is actually in Israel proper. But that's not where Jesus was. He's on the eastern side now. He's out there in this region of Decapolis. 
And the Bible tells us as he goes out there, they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself. Now before we get to the miracle, you need to see the multitude. The Bible tells us Jesus took this man aside from the crowd. From the crowd, oklos in the Greek. The word oklos means masses, multitude, a large number of common folk. In other words, we come to Decapolis and there is a huge turnout for Jesus in the Decapolis, also known as the region of Gadara or the Gadarenes. What was the last thing that we studied that happened in that region? Anyone know? Legion was cast out of the demon-possessed man. That's the last time Jesus was in Decapolis. And as he was ready to leave Decapolis, the man who was once you know, possessed by Legion said, I want to come with you. Let me come with you, Lord. He actually has someone say, I want to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, no. First time Jesus says no to someone who wants to follow him. Remember what he told the man? You go back. You talk to your people. You tell them what has taken place. Tell them the great things, Mark 5, 19 and 20, that the Lord has done for you and how He had mercy on you. And we're told He went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for Him and everyone was amazed. How many people does it take to turn out the masses for Jesus? It just took one in this case. The next time Jesus comes back into the region of Decapolis, the people who had sent Him away, who were freaked out by Him, who were upset by what He had done, are now welcoming Him with open arms. Which also tells us that when someone pushes away the message of Jesus, if you will continue to bring it, eventually they may come around. But we're back in Decapolis now. Massive turnout. It's wonderful. The ex-legionnaire has obviously been knocking on a few doors. And he has made a difference. You can make a difference. God needs one person in Oak Harbor to bring the Gospel to all of Oak Harbor. God needs one person in Anacortes to bring the Gospel to Anacortes. One person down in Coopville to bring the Gospel. One person in Laconner. One person on Guimas Island. One person in Burlington. One person in Mount Vernon. He doesn't need a massive army. He needs one voice willing to speak the Gospel as this one-time demon-possessed man obviously had done. Now, back to our deaf friend. Verse 32 says, They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. Mark uses an extremely rare word here. In fact, it's a word that is only found twice in the entire Bible, and to find it twice, you have to have the Septuagint. What do you mean, Rick? The Greek word for deaf here is kophos, and it means deaf or blunted. And it can actually mean deaf or mute, but in the context here it's deaf because then the man's other ailment is explained as well, which is the next word, which is mogalalos, which is kind of fun to say. Mogalalos. Mogalalos is used one time in the New Testament, one time in the Old Testament if you're reading the Septuagint. What's the Septuagint? You Bible students know the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. About 280 B.C., long about that time, almost 300 years before Jesus came along, uh, uh, Hebrew scholars that were also versed in Greek got together and wrote the first Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, and it's called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, we find Mogalalos used 
one time. It's used in the Septuagint one time. It's used in the New Testament by Mark one time. Wouldn't it be interesting if those two times correlated? If they were similar in usage? Well, here, Mogalalos, one who spoke with difficulty or has difficulty in speech. He wasn't mute, but he had difficulty talking. Obviously, he was deaf enough that he couldn't hear and had difficulty with his speech. So he was Mogalalos. Where is it used in the Septuagint? Isaiah 35, verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like deer, and the tongue of the mute Mogalalos will shout for joy. This was Isaiah's prophecy of the Messiah. Who Messiah would look like. What he would do that you could tie to Messiah when he comes. The one who would deal with Mogalalos. It's interesting that Mark uses the word, I think absolutely intentional, because Mark and Peter, probably the Hebrew scriptures that they used was the Septuagint. They probably read from that Greek translation because it was very common by the time they were living and writing. So Mark uses this word, inspired by the Spirit of God, Mogalalos, to draw our attention immediately back to Isaiah's prophecy, just in case anybody might miss it, The prophecy of Isaiah 35 is fulfilled in this miracle right here before us as Isaiah just said it would and as the Lord promised it would as well. Verse 33 says, Then Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears and after spitting he touched his tongue with the saliva. Now, right here we have simply put the weirdest miracle I think in the New Testament. You could almost call it a weirdical. It's just strange. You know? <laughs> Something odd about this one. This is the same Jesus, think about this, who up in Tyre healed a woman's demonized daughter without ever laying eyes on her. He never went to the Syrophoenician woman's house to heal her daughter. He just said, go, it is, it'll be done just as you have believed. This is the same Jesus who when the centurion comes to him and says, would you heal my servant? Jesus does so without even going to the hometown of the centurion, without even entering the house. At a distance, the centurion just said, say the word, I know that's good enough for me, I know it will happen. And it did. Jesus said the word, the man was healed. Jesus didn't need to do anything he did. No human contact was necessary for Jesus to heal people. Which makes the miracle of touching the leper very unique, doesn't it? He touches the leper. He says, I will be clean back in Mark chapter 2. Anytime Jesus does anything other than just say, be healed, should catch our attention because He doesn't have to do it. So what's He doing here? Fingers in ears. Touching His tongue. And what's up with the spit? A wet willy. Thanks for that, Jason. (laughs) Tina, I'll thank you to keep your husband quiet. When I'm up here trying to teach the serious word of God, he's over there making jokes. We don't make jokes here. In the Boston Globe, September 6, 2010, this article was written, Examining Saliva's Healing Power. I thought I'd share this with you. (laughs) You may think of saliva simply as lubrication for your tongue or a good adhesive for spitballs, but its surprisingly active substance has immune properties. Your saliva. 
contains immune cells, antimicrobial and antifungal proteins, growth factors that promote wound healing. There is, quote, medicinal value in saliva that's not appreciated, explains David Wong, a saliva expert. (laughs) We have them, I guess. A saliva expert and uh, director of the Dental Research Institute at University of California, Los Angeles. That helps explain why a burn or a cut in your mouth will heal five times faster than a similar wound on your skin and won't leave a scar. God has created us to have healing properties, immune properties in the saliva in our mouths. However, there's a counterpoint to saliva's healing properties, says Dr. Frank Oppenheim, Chair of Oral Biology at Boston University Henry M. Golden School of Dental Medicine. And I'm just Pastor Rick. That's amazing, these titles people get. He says, bite wounds are notorious for their potential to cause nasty infections. The saliva that is so healing in the mouth can carry disease if exposed to an open wound on the skin. That's because saliva's other component is bacteria that live in your mouth, so you're not as clean mouthed as you thought you were, which are very different from the bacteria normally found on the skin. If you bring oral bacteria to the skin, he says, the skin may not have the resistance to overcome infection, particularly with something more than a superficial burn. Studies in other mammals show that licking wounds promotes healing, and this has led scientists to try to identify specific components of saliva (laughs) that can be used to treat burn victims. But no one has conducted the same study in humans. Can you imagine going to the hospital? Hey, we're trying a new study. Just hold still. (laughs) The author of the article says, so for now you're going to have to spit at your own risk. I read this and I think, now did Jesus spit at his own risk? Why did Jesus spit at all? You know what I've heard, and perhaps you've heard with this miracle before, is Jesus was just being culturally relevant. I hate that argument. Because first of all, Jesus is culturally relevant. He doesn't have to try to be culturally relevant. His word is relevant in every culture of every time throughout all of history. You don't have to make Jesus relevant. And he didn't have to make himself relevant with each miracle that he performed. Now it's true, ancient beliefs held that saliva had healing virtue. The people believed in that, it had medicinal value, and because of that, some people say, well that's why Jesus did this, because he was kind of showing that, you know, spit is good. I don't think that's what he's doing. This miracle, if you really take a moment and think about it, is not about the significance of the spit. It is instead about the sensitivity of the Savior. We see in this miracle one of the most intimate and sensitive moments in all of Jesus' ministry. And you've got to see this because this is how Jesus deals with people. This is how He deals with you. This is how He deals with me. Think about it. Number one, He's dealing with a man who is deaf and has trouble speaking. And look at what He does. It's a deaf man who cannot hear. Right? So, Jesus takes the man aside from the crowd. He removes him from the hoopla. He takes him away from all the confusion, everything going on around that might distract from what he's about to do. He removes him from that situation so that he can get with him one on one. That's the first sign of sensitivity. He puts his fingers in the man's ears, which means as he's doing this, He's eye to eye with this guy. He's at least arm's length 
looking face to face with this man, puts his fingers in his ears. The Bible says he spits. And then he touches the man's tongue. He said, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Why does he say that? Jesus speaks a word that is in the Syrophoenician language, Ephatha. In the Decapolis, he spoke a word in the language that this deaf man would have understood. And he spoke a word, if you lip-read it, would be very easy to lip-read. Ephatha. You can see it on the lips. What's he doing? He's walking him through the miracle. He's showing him exactly what's about to take place. He's explaining some things to him. Two things stand out to me in this miracle. The first is obviously the sensitivity of the healing in the way Jesus interacts with this man. Sensitive to show him, not just a boom, all of a sudden, now he can hear, there's a massive crowd. Oh, I mean, that could be overwhelming, right? Jesus takes him aside, fingers and ears, spits. And I don't know that he spit and then touched the man's tongue. It's possible. It's not. We can't be absolutely sure that Jesus actually applied his saliva to the man's tongue. I don't think he did. It's totally a guess. I could be absolutely wrong on that. But I see him, fingers and ears. See what I just did? Okay, touch your tongue. You understand what, what's going on here? So sensitive. The same Jesus who, as I said before, touched the leper. The same Jesus who was sensitive enough to forgive the paralytic before raising him up. The same Jesus who commanded the man with the withered hand to stretch it out. This is the same Jesus who sent legion into the pigs, called the hemorrhaging woman his daughter, lifted up a little girl who was dead in her bed back to life. The same Jesus who fed 5,000 people. And in every single miracle, you know what we see? Distinction. Every miracle of Jesus, tailor-made to fit the person that He is healing. That's sensitivity, gang. That is the kindness of God in action. And here He tenderly leads this deaf man through the process of healing before He did it in a way that would help Him understand what was taking place. And I'm laboring on this point so that you and I both will understand today Jesus still personally leads people through healing today. We could sit here and spend the rest of the hour just going through how Jesus saved different people. How did He touch you in your life? How did you get to know Him? How did you get to know Him? And I guarantee you, every story, though they might have similarities, would be different and unique and personal because God takes you personally. Because he interacts tenderly. And Titus chapter 3, verse 4 says, When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewing by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The sensitivity of the Savior. He was not a cookie-cutter miracle maker. Oh, deaf person, here's the format. Blind person, here's the format. Lame person, here's the format. He does it differently with every person. He meets them where they are to bring them where He is. And I love that about Jesus. That's what I'm loving so much about going through the book of Mark is we're seeing this instant, this 
intimate and individual treatment that Jesus gives to people as He moves through His ministry. And it is so sensitive. And also He's doing something else here. For this man, not only is Jesus being sensitive, but He's helping this man understand the very source of the healing. This isn't something that happens magically because the stars aligned. You know? This is something Jesus says, this is coming from Myself to you. Fingers in His ears and He spits. My spit. I'm touching you. What's happening to you now is coming from Me. So there's no way this guy could possibly have missed it. The healing came from within Jesus' own being. I am the source of your healing, He's saying. As He looks eye to eye with this man. And gang, in the same way, Jesus is the only source of your salvation. You will not find salvation any other way. You cannot get to the Father any other way. Even as the sinful man, uh, sinful people spat on Jesus on the cross, the source of our healing was already underway. By His blood, by His stripes. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you were healed. Our healing has come from within Jesus. He is the source. And Peter says, You were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Now, 1 Peter chapter 2, he quotes from Isaiah 53 verse 5. We need to understand something about that. Isaiah 53, uh, verse 5, says, By His stripes we are healed. By His wounds we are healed. And we often use this, and I think rightly so, to say that it is the blood of Jesus that brings about healing. And so when we're praying for someone to be healed, we plead the blood. Because there is healing power in the sacrifice of Christ. Immediate healing power. But, Peter says, there is a bigger issue involved than just your immediate healing. I've said before, Jesus may heal you in this life, but guess what? You're still going to die. So you really want to be healed? Then you be washed by the blood so that you will enter into eternity. There's your healing. And Peter makes that clear. He bore our sins in His body on the cross so we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by His wounds you were healed. What kind of healing is that? Salvation. You are healed by salvation. Don't put that down on the low shelf, gang. That happens among Christians sometimes. We go, well, I know I'm saved, but I want to be healed. Well, wait a minute. That is the greatest source of healing anyone can possibly have because it means you're going to live forever. Or you can be healed of your limp or your lameness or your deafness or your blindness or your cancer. Be healed, marvelous, and still die. Which one do you want? I would far rather die of a disease here and have my eternal healing. Which is what Jesus provided first and foremost through His blood on the cross of Calvary. Jesus is the source of your healing. I think it's interesting that Paul says in Romans 10 verse 8, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. And as Jesus heals this man and touches his tongue. I mean, the healing going right into the guy's mouth. And what will happen to the man? His tongue will be loosed. And he'll be able to speak again. 
Paul says, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we're preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus is both sensitive and He is the source of this man's healing. Look at verse 34. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, He said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Be opened. Why does Jesus sigh? And that's what I want to think about just for a few more minutes here. Why does Jesus sigh in this miracle? He may have sighed at other times, other points, other miracles. We're only told about this one. And he prays, saying, Be open. Why does he do it? The Greek word there for sigh. Stenadzo. Stenadzo, uh, Woost tells us that the word indicates a great strain. So it is that straining, groaning sigh. Remember when the Pharisees asked for a sign. Even after all the miracles of healing and wonder-working power of Jesus, they say, show us a sign. And Jesus goes, are you kidding me? It reminds me of my first youth ministry when I had already resigned and I was about to move about two weeks later and I was having an exit interview with our elders at this particular church. Not this one. Long time ago. And one of the elders said, Rick, I just, I just got a question for you. I just, how, how can we figure out a way to get you in the office more often? And I sighed. <laughs> because my attitude was the youth pastor doesn't belong in an office. He belongs out with teenagers. So I was never in the office. I was out where the kids were. When school was out, I was gone. And there was a, a, a rumor out there that Rick left the office at 2.30 every day just to go hang out at home. Not true. I was out with the kids. I had made that clear. And he brings this up, and I'm like, okay, first of all, I've already resigned. I'm leaving in two weeks, and you're actually asking me how you can get me in the office more? And my reaction was just that, really? <laughs> a sigh of exasperation. This is not that kind of sigh. As Jesus heals this deaf man, it is not a sigh of exasperation. Some possibilities here. Number one, a sigh of exertion. A sigh of exertion. Have you ever stopped to consider the demanding, exhausting toll that healing might have taken on Jesus? That when He healed somebody, that it actually was wearisome over time. That when we have in Matthew 15 a picture of Jesus healing for three days straight, how do you think Jesus felt at the end of the three days? Energized? Ready to run? Or did it perhaps take a toll on His body? Think about the woman with the 12-year hemorrhage who we read about a couple of weeks ago who touched the fringe of His robe. What happened? Mark chapter 5, verse 30. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in Himself that the power from Him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched My garments? Something physical, gang, happened in the body, the human body of Jesus. Yes, Jesus is God in the flesh. 100% God, but He was also 100% man. What happened to His body? When the woman touched the fringe and power went out, Jesus felt it. (gasps) I just lost some power there. I never thought about this before. But the perfect union of the spiritual and the human was Jesus. And the one does affect the other. And you know this. You, I, I know this. I can sit in my office and study for eight hours. I haven't walked around. I haven't run a marathon. I've just sat there studying. And I can be exhausted. 
Because what's happening spiritually affects me physically. Just as what's happening physically, by the way, affects you spiritually. I've shared before, if you're finding yourself depressed, eat an apple. Have a glass of orange juice. You know, do, because sometimes what's going on physically is affecting your spirit. But the same way with Jesus. He perceives the power going out. And that being the case, I wonder every time Jesus healed, we know power went out from Him. Jesus, fully God but fully man, subject to human frailty. And I wonder if weariness and exhaustion didn't from time to time set in as as Jesus was healing people. Sigh of exertion. Les, let me ask you a question. Do you ever feel wiped out at the end of a day when you've been praying with people all day long? The rest of you, when you find yourself, when you've been ministering to someone, caring for someone, counseling with someone, praying for them, you ever leave that place and just go, boy, I'm just, I'm beat. Sigh of exertion. It's important to note because there's a lot going on here. When we minister, when we serve, power goes out. God declares that. And He says in Psalm 41 verse 10, Cease striving and know that I am God. Be still. Chill out. That's why the Bible is so clear about taking our rest. We need our rest. If we're going to fight this spiritual battle, if we're going to be involved in ministry and compassionate healing and care and counseling for other people, whether within the church or without... We need our rest. Don't miss that. Sigh of exertion. By the way, there's another possibility for this sigh of exertion, and that's battle fatigue. I thought about this this last week. What does it take to disarm determined demons? What kind of power does that take? What kind of power does it take to push back against the principalities or to bind the strong man, Satan? We have a biblical example. Daniel chapter 10. The prophet Daniel, he lay on his couch mourning for three, three weeks. Wiped out. No response from God. And he's on his couch just just completely worn out. Praying the whole time, striving, struggling. And in Daniel chapter 10 verse 12, we find out what was going on while Daniel was wiped out on the couch. Let me read this to you. Gabriel, the angel, comes to Daniel and says, From the first day that you set your heart on understanding and humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to your words. Wait a minute, Gabriel, that was three weeks ago. Where you been, man? And Gabriel says, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me For I have been left there with the kings of Persia. Do you get the angelic intrigue there? That's a remarkable verse. We just had the heavens opened up and we see, here comes Gabriel in response to Daniel's prayer, and the principality of Persia, a demonic being, fights him and holds him off and actually imprisons Gabriel. Detains him. And they have to send in Michael the archangel now to battle to release Gabriel so he can come down and respond to Daniel's prayer. Not my word, God's word. Read it, Daniel chapter 10. I mean, that is remarkable insight for us. And we should recognize that sometimes when we pray and we're not getting answer, there's stuff going on in the heavenlies. Principalities being pushed back, we don't even see. And I wonder sometimes if God hears the voices of Christians say, Lord, why aren't you answering me? He doesn't say, 
how little you understand. How little you know is really going on here. Jesus cast out demons. Do you think it was a cakewalk? Or was there something going on that might possibly cause the sigh of exertion? Here's the good news. If you are ministering to someone, if you're bringing the gospel to someone, if you're just praying against the evil that is impacting somebody's life, and it's exhausting you, and you find yourself sighing the sigh of exertion. Listen to this, Romans 8.38. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Which means when you are praying and you are exerting all energy in this and you're not getting an answer from God, understand this one thing. You may not see the immediate answer, but the love of God is just as close in your heart as it's always been. You cannot be separated from that. And He's doing something. He's at work. You just hang on. And you keep praying, even if it brings the sigh of exertion. It's possible that Jesus deeply sighed against the unseen spiritual forces in the heavenly realm as He's about to heal this man right then and right there. But there's a second possibility. Not just a sigh of exertion, but a sigh of compassion. Which fits with the manner of this miracle, doesn't it? Jesus looks up to heaven. And Ironside tells us He sighed as He recognized the ravages of sin that were made on every hand. The ravages of sin in this world. I don't know what it was that caused this man to be deaf. Or caused his tongue to be bound up. I don't know if it was something that he did in his life that led to it. But I do know this, as we've talked about quite a bit recently, that sin causes disease. The root of every disease ever experienced in history, the root of every disease is sin. And it may or may not be sin in your own life. But sin impacted, sin messed up the human bloodline from the very beginning. And ever since we've had sickness and disease and illness, ever since the curse came on, death has been an issue. If you sin, you die. So every sin. And Jesus recognizes that. And with every healing, He's got to know what we should know. He wouldn't have to heal if not for sin in the world. And so he looks up to heaven and he sighs over the ravages of sin. Let me tell you what the ravages of sin do. Our own Don Coonan's sister Jenny just found out that she has spinal cancer. It began, apparently as breast cancer, she didn't even know, has already spread to her spine. They're giving her a very, very short amount of time to live. She has three children. I think ages three, five, and eight right around there. And I heard this, you know what, the first thing I did when I heard that, I went, (sighs) got the email, Jackie sent it out to the prayer team, and I just, I sighed. I think about, about Salve Atterbury, who Leslie has asked to pray about, Salve who lives in Anacortes, who has discovered that she has cancer as well. And it was the second time in, in a day that I heard about two people that just have very, very serious cancer. And I just went, and I see Jesus doing that with every disease. I just, you hear the sigh of compassion. That it's heartbreaking. I, I sighed 
on Friday, we had a, a ministry staff meeting, and uh, Les brought to us a thing called Ryan's House that, shepherds, we need to think about supporting. Ryan's House here on Whidbey Island that is looking for homes for homeless kids on Whidbey Island. Did you know that this year, 85 teenagers were homeless on Whidbey Island? 85 kids wandering the streets with nowhere to sleep. The largest percentage of those kids are out on the street because their parents are doing drugs. And I sigh. Sigh of compassion. And gang, I think God's people are called to compassionate sighing. Not to turning a blind eye, not to ignoring the pain of the world. I think we're called to feel the pain of those around us. Now it's a lot easier if you don't. It'd be a lot easier if Leslie just ignored Salve's problem. You know, I, I can't deal with that. I just, I've got my own stuff that I got. You know, I've got Mike to deal with, so I'm just gonna kind of <laughs> deal with that and forget. I just and don't you ever find yourself doing that? I can't deal with that right now. Jesus felt the pain of the world. Jesus about to heal this man. Sigh of compassion. He's feeling this man's aching and hurting and, and the life that he's had to live like this. Sigh of compassion. I have a couple more things to say about that. Can we just stop for a minute and pray for Jenny Coonan and for Salve and pray against the cancer that is attacking them? Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, Don is among us here in the fellowship. We, we know Don. We don't know Jenny. But Father, our hearts break for her. Our hearts break for her husband, for her children, and for the, the very difficult situation they're in. But Lord, it is not a situation that is out of Your hands. And so we pray this morning for a miraculous healing for Jenny. We pray that You will reach into her body and You will remove the cancer that is seeking to destroy her life. We pray for a powerful dispensation of healing in her to the glory of Your name. We pray that something will be done here by You, Lord, as the source of her healing. You will reach into her body and heal in such a way that nobody could think there's any other way but just a miracle of God and that You be glorified in it. Father, we join our hearts as one before You asking this on behalf of Jenny. Heal Your daughter. Heal, Lord, we pray, Salve Atterbury. Lord, may this be a testimony and a witness to her that You love her and that You have plans yet for her. And while we do not in either of these cases pray against Your will, Father, we pray in Your will, we understand You have a will. But we're crying out to You as You called us to. We are sighing with compassion for these two ladies. And we're praying for Your healing now. In the blood of Jesus and by His name we pray. Amen. Sigh of compassion. Ezekiel chapter 21, verse 6 says, As for you, Son of Man... Groan with a breaking heart and bitter grief. Groan in their sight. God commanded Ezekiel to groan and feel the pain of His people. And when they say to you, why do you groan? You shall say, because of the news that is coming. And every heart will melt. All hands will be feeble. Every spirit will faint. And all knees will be as weak as water. Behold, it comes. It will happen, declares the Lord God. We live in a world that is going to hell in a handbasket. Does it make you sigh? 
And I'm not talking about the sigh of exhaustion. I am so sick of hearing about the election. <sighs> I'm just so tired of what I see on the news. I am sick and tired of this sinful world. Lord, just take me out. He hasn't taken us out. And there's a reason that we are still here. And part of that reason is that we would, Jesus, would sigh the sigh of compassion, not just for people facing disease, but for a lost and dying world. That we would hurt for those who right now have no hope. And perhaps in our sighing, be led to say, you just need Jesus. Is there anything wrong with a person seeing emotion in your face when you tell them about Jesus Christ? Tears in your eyes as you plead with them to come to know Him. This is real business game. And we should feel this pain. Joyful, yes. But we should feel the pain that compassion demands. For Jesus' sake, let us sigh for this lost world. Well, these are both valid reasons for sighing. For Jesus to sigh, especially the sigh of exertion, the sigh of compassion. But you know what? There is yet a deeper reason for this sigh. Turn over, keep your finger here, and turn over to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 22. The Apostle Paul is writing here, he says, For we know that the whole creation groans, stenazo, sighs. The whole creation sighs and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan, stenazo, sigh, within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Now both of those two sighs there, verse 22 and 23, are the sighs of exhaustion. We're just waiting. We're tired of these bodies. The world is tired of its longevity, of its aching, of where it is. Verse 24, For in hope we've been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we will wait eagerly for it. And gang, as we persevere, we're going to sigh the sigh of exhaustion. We're hanging in there. We're going to just... It's been a tough haul. But we're hanging in. Verse 26, In the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, stenazo, with sighs too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the Spirit knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Not just the sigh of exertion or the sigh of compassion, but as Jesus heals this man, it is the sigh of intercession. The sigh of intercession. Jesus went to the Father on behalf of this deaf man. As Jesus sighs and intercedes and says, Ephatha, the man sees it, understands what he's saying, the healing comes, the healing happens. Gang, Jesus does it for you and for me today. He still sighs the sigh of intercession. Skip down to verse 34. 
Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, who rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 7.25, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. It's the sigh of intercession. Which, by the way, involves the sigh of exertion and the sigh of compassion. You don't pray intercessory prayer without exerting your energy to do so and without the compassion of Jesus Christ. Why is this such a big deal? Because we are called to this kind of sighing. We are called to the sigh of intercession. To groan in our spirits as we pray for one another. As we intercede for one another on behalf of each other to the Father, we are called to sigh, to exert our spirits, to compassionately sigh, making every effort on behalf of a deaf and muted world that they might come to know Jesus Christ. Back in Mark 7.36, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more He ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. We said this on Wednesday night. Isn't it interesting? Back then, Jesus said, don't talk about it, and they did. Now Jesus says, talk about it. Do we? Verse 37, they were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Indeed, Jesus does. He is the source of our salvation. He is the sensitive Savior who meets you where you are and He sighs with exertion and compassion, the sigh of intercession, even this moment. You know, He's sighing for you right now. He's sighing for me. He's interceding before the Father right now. He does all things well. Amen. Let's stand up together. Lord, it is such an awesome thing to see you at work. Jesus, I am so appreciative just that we that we can open your word and and take the time to enter into every one of these scenarios, these scenes of of history that took place and to watch you. Now thank you, Lord, that through your servant Mark, you you preserved this word so we could see Jesus in action. And Jesus, we could understand how great your love is for us. We can see that you have done all things well. Thank you, Lord Jesus. But Father, I, I confess to you that the longer I live, the easier it is for me to just shut off the world. I confess to you, Father, the longer I live, the more I know when an exhausting, a tiring, uh, situation is coming my way and there's just that tendency in so many of us to, to turn and walk the other way quickly to avoid the difficult to try and get, and get away from that which is painful Father because our human hearts have trouble with that but I'm asking Father for your power in us that if there are those here this morning who power has gone out of them and they're exhausted and they're just tired of ministry, they're tired of caring, they're tired of, of loving other people, that you would fill us with a new power. That you would restore and, and revive and quicken our spirits by your spirit. That for every pouring out, there would be a, a more abundant pouring in by your Holy Spirit that we might, Lord, intercede compassionately 
and energetically for these very people we've been praying for this morning. Father, I I know that somebody this morning is going to walk in the doors. Perhaps they're here right now. Maybe they'll be here second hour. Who is not absolutely sure about their salvation. I pray this morning that we will see you, your sensitivity, and we will recognize, Jesus, that you are the source. And that every tongue in this fellowship would confess and every heart would believe Christ Jesus raised from the dead. I pray this in Jesus' name.